thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Take your Bibles and open them, would you please, to John chapter 17. We're studying through the Gospel of John together, walking alongside Jesus. And we're in a little sub-series entitled The King Prays as we are learning from the prayer of Jesus how to pray. We're learning what is on his heart. We're learning more about his character, about his love, about what's important for, to him, his concern for the flock. It's like being on holy ground. As he does the opposite of what we, we do when we pray, normally when we're praying, we fold our hands, we bow our heads, and we close our eyes. But we learn in the beginning Jesus does just the opposite. He lifts his hands, looks upward with his eyes wide open, and he begins to pray to the Father out loud with the disciples and everyone listening. It's almost as if we're right next to him, and he's praying out loud, and we get to hear what this intimate moment is, because that's what prayer is. It's, it's really an intimate conversation. That's why some of you are very uncomfortable praying out loud when there are people around, because you know how your prayer life goes. As you're praying, you start to share more You get caught up in your relationship with the Father. And you get caught up in this time of dialogue. And as you're praying, intimate things start coming out. And personal things start coming out. And and you're afraid of what people might think about you or somebody coming in. You know, because on Wednesday nights, we've been praying together uh, in groups. And we've been interceding for one another. We've been praying for one another. And and you don't have anything to worry about praying with fellow believers. Jesus prayed out loud and everybody was listening to his prayer. And here we are now a couple thousand years later, studying his prayer, that it was prayed out loud and then written down by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to pray, and it's a good thing to pray together. And so we're covering, we're overlapping our studies uh, so that we can catch, take, you know, take, start where we left off. So let's go to verse 6 in chapter 17. As Jesus is praying, he says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. That was an encouraging part of our Bible study last time, wasn't it? That God evidently sees things very differently than you and I see things. Because when he's praying for the disciples, what he prays to the Father is, they received my word and they kept it. But unfortunately, it's so easy for us not to see the things that we've kept, but to see the things that we haven't kept. We spent a lot of time last time uh, in our Bible study really emphasizing seeing things the way God sees things so that we'd be encouraged. Sure, there's so many things in our lives that we could look at that would discourage us. But when Jesus prays for his disciples, he prays for the things that they kept and how encouraging that must have been to their hearts and their ears. Verse 7, now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to to them the words which you have given to me and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me this we learn is the definition of discipleship that Jesus received the words from the father then he gave them to the disciples and they received them and they too gave them away and remember to receive also includes to act upon that we're not just hearers only, but doers of God's word. And this is discipleship. Paul would pick up on this. 
when he taught us on the topic of taking communion together, he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also declared to you. Then we went back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and Timothy is told by Paul, he says, Timothy, the things that you've learned and received from me, you commit them and teach them to faithful men that they might be able to teach others also. And that's a simple definition of what it means to be a disciple. We hear, we receive, then we act upon, and we give. It's very simple. Now, if you like to write in your Bibles, circle the word in verse 8, the word words. It's there, for I have given to them the words. The Greek word there is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Now remember, you're reading an English translation of the Bible. The original language of the New Testament, it was written in what's known as Koine Greek or the simple Greek of the day. And the Greek word rhema, sometimes it's good to look at the original words because they have a much deeper meaning than our English words like here. This literally refers to a spoken word, not a written word. Even though Jesus did use the written word, the Torah, he used the, the, the Old Testament, what we know is the Old Testament today to teach, he also spoke to them. And this has an even deeper meaning than just the spoken word. It, it speaks of a word that comes at the right time. Now, the idea is the right word at the right time. They received the words that I had for them. In the Proverbs, they put it this way in Proverbs twenty-five, eleven: A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. It's a sweet thing. A word fitly spoken. So important to receive the words that are fitly spoken. And it reminds me, of how appreciative I am of the work of the Holy Spirit in his church through the beautiful work of encouragement in people's lives. Don't you like a good encourager in your life? It's good to see you, brother. Haven't seen you in a long time. Welcome back. Anyway, sorry, sorry. It's just very encouraging. Don't you like to be encouraged? I like to be encouraged, especially with a word fitly spoken, where... You know how it is. You come in here, you're beat up, and you're going through it. And as you're going through it, there's that sister. She sees you across the, ro- across the hall, and she just locks into you and says, Oh, it's so good to see you. And she gives you a hug, fitly given. And a word, and says, I've been praying for you. Or it's that gift of encouragement. Or, or you receive that text out of the blue, and you go, Where did this come from? Well, you, God put you on someone's heart, and they sent you a text. Or they put a hand on you and started praying. And, and encouragement. It's a word fitly spoken. It's a rhema word. Listen, it's very very important for us to understand that we come from Bible study. We need to listen for the word of the Lord. We need to listen for that word fitly spoken. If indeed you're in a church that teaches the Bible regularly and you're opening at it consistently and, and you know, you, you happen to be, if you're here at Calvary, you're a part of a church so we're going to teach the Bible regularly all the time through the word, verse by verse, word by word, book by book. Well, that's what we use. That's the tool. The tool that we use uh, for Bible study is the Bible. That's what we use. But when you're in the Bible all the time, daily devotions, you're in Bible study, you're tuned into Christian radio, listening to Bible study, you may get into a pattern of simply listening for knowledge sake. So, oh, that was a good nugget. That, that was a good insight. 
instead of listening to Bible study or opening your devotionals and saying, what is your word for me? What's your word for my family? What's your word for my son, my daughter, my friend, my boss? What's the Rima word? And so the disciples here are being encouraged that they heard the, the right word for them. They received what Jesus had to share with them, not just the didactic or the teaching part. They, they got the word for themselves. And how important it is for us to get the word for ourselves from the Lord. Now notice, let's pick up in verse 9. It says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I found this very interesting, and I want to pause here for a moment. I find it interesting that as Jesus is praying, he's saying, I'm praying for the disciples, I'm praying for the believers, but I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for the believers, but I'm not praying for the world. I find that very interesting because because why isn't Jesus praying for the world? Well, I suggest to you, in this particular prayer, he's not praying for the world because he is just about to die for the world. He's going to give the greatest gift that, he, that could ever be given to the world by his death. And this particular prayer is a prayer for his disciples. He's praying for them. And toward the end, remember, he's going to pray for us, people that will believe later. But he's praying, he's praying for the disciples. Why? Because the disciples, like you and I, are the salt and the light of the earth. We are in the earth, we are in the world today to bring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to those that are around us. And I don't want you to take this prayer, verse 9, and misunderstand that you and I have no obligation to pray for the world. We have a, a great and a grand obligation and a command to pray for this world, consistently and continually. Yes, we have been saved from this world. We've been taken out of this world, but we live in this world. We are in this world, but we're not of this world. And because of that, we have a great obligation to pray. Because I know how, I know how the, the world scene can really discourage us. It can be you know, the world has, uh, we're in a time of great chaos and confusion and craziness. Uh, the world is, seems like it's, till, you know, you have to understand, even though that's happening in our life right now, it's happened in every generation. In every generation, a true believer would look at the world and just shake their head and go, what's going on? What's happening here? Why is this going on? And why is this happening? And, and in our own day and age, in our old day and age, there, there are things happening that haven't happened in any, genera- any other generation. And we're concerned. And maybe perhaps a few of us are worried. Many others are frustrated and upset. And, and the more frustrated and upset and worried you become, you may just like, you know what? Forget this world. Jesus, just come and deliver me. Take me home. Forget this world. But that's not the heart of God. The heart of God is, well, he sent a Savior to die for this world. And, and the Bible The Bible teaches us on more than one occasion that we have a responsibility to this world as believers. And one of the responsibilities is to pray. If you're still yet unconvinced, let's turn over to 1 Timothy with me. And that's all the way to the right. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We get so distracted from the basic simplicity 
of what the, what the Lord wants to do through our lives in the world today. And one of the things that God wants to see from us is more prayer and more prayer for a lost and hurting world, for a lost and dying world. But we get caught up in all sorts of things. And, and Lord, forgive us. Notice what he says. Paul, writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, he tells young pastor how to oversee the church. And he says this, Therefore, this is 1 Timothy 2, chapter 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for, what does your Bible say? All men. Now, before we move on with the next verse, there are four types of prayer mentioned here. I don't want to develop it for you. We've done it before. But I'll give you the definition so you can understand the broad scope of prayer. First of all, he mentions supplications. Supplications are... Uh, is another word for requests. When you pray, make requests for the all men. It's like Jesus saying, ask, seek, and knock. Start requesting things for other people, for the world. Secondly, he uses the word prayers. This is a generic word that covers all kinds of praying. Uh, the idea in later on in the Bible where it says, pray without ceasing. So just keep praying. You know, keep requesting, keep praying. Thirdly, the word intercession The word intercession, this is literally standing in the gap for others. And it's very closely with supplication, where you're interceding for others and you're interceding on behalf of others and you're praying for others and you're bringing them before the throne room of grace so that you can find help in time of need. And then the fifth one we're very familiar with, when we're praying, we're giving a thanks for all men. We're thanking God for all men. We're thanking God for the people that are in our lives. We're thanking God for the opportunity to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world. So then he says, make sure these things are made for all men. And then he says in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good. What is good? Praying for all people. Praying for the leaders of our country and our world. This is good. And acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, again, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let me ask you a question. What is the name of the last king you prayed for? (laughs) I asked that last night as I was teaching. It just came to mind. I'm like, man, I don't think I've... Yeah, you know what? I did. I prayed for the king of Jordan lately. I've prayed for the king of Jordan. And I started thinking, what's his name? It's King Abdullah. You know, there are, a lot of times in Bible study, we'll just pass over this and go, well, you know, kings mean people in lead. No, the Bible says, literally, pray for kings. And we can easily dismiss that in the culture that we live in, in the kind of democracy, government, the republic system of government that we have, that we, well, there aren't any kings. There are many kings on the earth today. They primarily oversee Muslim countries in the Middle East. And I began to think myself, I was just convicted as I was teaching last night. This all came to me as I was teaching through this. I was convicted that that's the only king's name that I know. And I haven't been praying for the king of Saudi Arabia. And I haven't been praying for all these kingdoms that are going on in the Middle East. And and, and the Lord says to pray for them. And I wonder what kind of work God would do if his people would get on their knees and pray for kings. And all that are in authority. Yeah, all that. Now that comes to our system of government. You know, praying, praying for those that are in authority over us. The mayor of our city. The governor of our state. The current president of our United States. The next president will be coming in in just a few days to pray for them. To lift them before the Lord. God's ordained leader of our country. Yeah, should we pray for the Republicans? Yes. 
Should we be praying for the Democrats? Yes. The independents? Yes. The ones that unplug from the political system? Yes. We should be praying for all men. But what happens? We get caught up in the politics of things. We get caught up in the opinions of things. And instead of praying for people, we're upset with people. We're tearing them down. We're building ourselves up. And we're disobeying the Lord and losing the saltiness and the light that God has put on the earth through the church. So we're to pray for the world. We're to pray for one another. But we're also to pray for the world. Paul tells Timothy, don't you be known. Don't let your church be known by your building don't let your church be known by your name. Don't let your church be known by, your, by you, Timothy, or by your outreach, or how big you are, how, how many people come, or what social concerns. You be known for your prayer. Be known that you're a praying people. Be known that you receive my rhema word. Be known as a congregation that is, serves your community, brings the love of Jesus into your community. In other words, first and foremost, you're to be a people who pray without ceasing, who continually pray, taking people to the throne room of God. Consider when he says to pray for kings, do you know who was in charge at the time? You know who Paul is referring to here? He's referring to a church to pray for a man by the name of Nero, who has gone down in history as one of the top five people, if you're making a list, I'm sure he would make the top five of Christian-hating, destroying people in charge of a government of all history. A church praying for those that are in authority because those that are in authority are only there by the predetermined counsel of God. What would change if you started praying more for your boss? Some of you think your boss is a snake right now. You thought I was doing that for you. (laughs) But what would change if you prayed for your boss? If you prayed for your supervisor? If you prayed for police officers? If you prayed for doctors and those that are authority over your health and can take care of you? What would happen if you prayed for the leadership in your church, your pastors, your leaders? What would change? A lot would change. Your heart would change. Humility would reign your eyes would be open not through the lens of politics and not through the lens of selfishness and not through the lens... You know, when when I take my glasses off, I can't see. I look around and it's one big blur. And if I do this too often, I'll get a little dizzy. But when I put my glasses on, whoa, I see everything through these lenses. And the lenses... I just went to the eye doctor recently on Monday and they fixing all that machine to get the next lenses I have to get just at the right prescription because everything I see will be through these lenses. And if the doctor does his job right, and he does, and the person that's going to grind the glasses and fix them do their job right, and he will, I'll get another pair of glasses that will make everything I see a little bit more clearer. But what happens is we put on glasses that we see the world through that don't belong. We see, the, we see people through our own preconceived ideas or our own preconceptions or our own selfishness or our own hurt and our own pain when we need to be putting on the glasses and see everything through the lens of the finished work of Jesus Christ. His birth, his death, and his resurrection changes everything. 
And it gives us a heart for people. So, so that we are constantly praying. We are constantly telling God about men. That's what prayer is. We're telling God about men. Supplicating, interceding, thanking, and praying. But, but we, don't, we, we can't just be a church. We can't just be a church that tells God about men. We also have to be a fellowship family, a church that tells men about God. That's why we're on the earth. That we're not just praying to God about people, but we're telling people about the God that we pray to. That's why God has you where he has you. Preordained, purposeful. Because it says that it's desire of God, verse 4, that all men be saved. It's this desire that all men repent of their sins. Everyone. It's God's desire that, that lives are forever and eternally changed by coming in to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we have, a, we have a Savior today at the right hand of the Father, the Bible says, interceding for us so that we'll be praying for men, telling God about men and telling men about God. That's why we're on the earth. So back in John 17, in this particular prayer, Jesus isn't praying for the world, but he came to die for the world, the greatest gift. And you and I as his followers, now we pray for the world. And he prays for us. So good. So wonderful. Verse 10 now. One more thing before we head out. He says in his prayer, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Now I'm no longer in the world, but those, these that are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. His name is what? Say louder. Judas, the son of perdition. He's referring to a very particular person. Judas, the son of destruction or the son of death. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. And I'll come back to him before we leave. But now, verse 13, I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Lot, a lot to unpack here, but I only want to draw out one thing. You know, one of the things I see here is that beautiful unity that God wants in his church. His desire is for us to be unified in Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. It's very important. But instead, I want you to see the three different times that Jesus uses the same word. He uses the word keep, kept, and kept. And I want us to be encouraged today by the keeping power of God. The keeping power. That is a key relationship between Jesus and his disciples. It's a key part of the relationship between you and me and Jesus Christ. And that is that he keeps us and none are lost. God's people, Jesus says, you and I are the Father's gift to the Son. He, he speaks of us being given to Jesus. Which what that means is we belong to him. We, he owns us. We are his prized possession. We've been purchased, the Bible says in another place, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been purchased by that blood. We belong to him. And it reminds me that it's a lasting permanent gift where you and I are kept by him. We're kept and not thrown away when we make a mistake. We are kept and not just discarded when we step into sin. We are kept and not lost when we wander away and stray. 
The Bible actually describes us in Isaiah 43 as precious in the sight of God. We are precious in his sight. And how the Lord watches over us, how God seeks our best, how God seeks our good, how Jesus prays for us, how his power keeps us. Because I'll tell you what, if there's one thing among many things that we all share today, it's our weaknesses. We're really not as strong as we think we are. We're really not as, as strong as we think we are spiritually, as far as God might have brought us, as much of the Bible that might be in us, as much of the service that might be coming from us. We're not as strong as we think we are. Circumstances in life and temptation. You know, temptation is very strong. And temptations are, are uniquely specific to you and me. They're uniquely specific. That's why we can't be in judgment on anyone when we hear somebody fall and we go, oh man, I can't believe he did that because I would never have done that. Perhaps that's true. But you've got to understand that temptation was for that brother. And your temptation, it's coming. And you don't want to be prideful as you're judging another brother. As a matter of fact, the Bible says when you see a brother fall, that you're to go along and help that brother back up. It actually says in the end of Galatians to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And the idea of that word restore, the original language is like a doctor resetting a broken bone, putting it together carefully and gently. You know, at just the, any, at, at the, at the right time, or you could say the wrong time and the right temptation, any one of us are out. And so we can't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And, and here we are as we think of our weaknesses. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, James says, we all stumble in many things. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Oh, really? It's true. Amen. That's the testimony of our lives. In this case, it's all about our tongues. <laughs> like if any of you go, well, you know, I didn't say amen, man, because that doesn't apply to me. Okay, let me read it another way. There are some among us that never stumble. Can I get an amen to that? Good. Good, because Saturday night we got a few, and we had to follow them home to watch. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. If it was just our mouths, we'd be in big trouble. But it's so much else on our lives, isn't it? Maybe you've got your mouth in control, but it's your head. Maybe it's not your head or your mouth, but it's your hands. You're still very angry and you pound the desk. Or maybe it's just wandering with the eyes. And maybe it's the internal pride. The Bible says that there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that plague us all. We all stumble. Aren't you glad that when you stumble that you're kept by the power of God? <laughs> you're not kept by your own good works. You're not kept because you're a good little Christian. You're not kept because you have a nice attendance record at Calvary Chapel in Aurora. You're not kept because you have a prayer life that's more this year than it was last year. You're not kept because here we are on day, what's today's date? The 15th? 15 days you have read the Bible in a row. Woohoo! That's a great thing. That's wonderful. I hope you make it 365. But if on day 62, you wake up sick and you forget to pray, you're not kept because you read 61 days in a row. 
I'm grateful for the keeping power of God, especially when I go to sleep. Who's going to keep me while I'm asleep? When I'm not looking out for my life at all? Who's going to watch my back when I can't see behind me? The Bible says that God keeps me. That Jesus tells, as he's praying, you know how encouraging it must have been for the disciples to hear this? That we're okay, guys, because Jesus is keeping us. And when he leaves, don't forget the context. We just spent many weeks looking at the context and where this all is. This prayer ends a long teaching of Jesus preparing them for his departure. And he says, I'm leaving, but Father, you keep them. In Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in verse 24. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Turn over to 1 Peter, would you? All the way in the back, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes on this topic. And I want to end with his encouragement. Peter writes on this topic. And he would know. And he would brag on the great security that you and I have in our salvation. That we are born again to an incorruptible seed. We are born again into the keeping power of God. We are born again, not to be born again again. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. I read of the glorious truth that a man and a woman must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. But I never read that a man must be born again again after he's unborn again and then be born again again and then he's unborn again 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 and then he has to be born. There's nothing like that in the scriptures. But all over the Bible is the power of God to keep you, to preserve you, to keep you from stumbling, to protect you. All over the Bible is the power of God and the love of God. It's not this pattern of having my salvation, losing my salvation, having my salvation, losing my salvation. Listen, if you're born again, You are kept by the power of God. The real question is, are you born again? (laughs) That's the real question. And that's where self-deception comes in. Because if you think here that you just raise your hand and go, I want to be saved, and you go out and live like the devil, that that represents a true believer, that I'm concerned for you. Or that you were raised in a godly home, so you must be saved. I'm concerned for you. Or I've been in church my whole life, and, and and I love God. I don't have anything against him, but your life, you know, Paul would write to the Corinthians and he would say this. He wrote to a church just like this. He could write it to our church. Don't you guys be deceived. And he lists a whole bunch of sins. He says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I think the deception is, is that you can practice sin and think you're okay with the Lord. Now, I have to do, I do want to say that the Bible speaks of believers that backslide, stumble, for sure. I think the greatest example of that is when Jesus teaches us about the prodigal son, which, by the way, is an unfortunate title for that parable. Because really, if you're going to title it the prodigal son, you actually have to title it the prodigal sons, because that dad had two problems, not one. But really, the prodigal is not about the sons at all. It should be the prodigal of a loving, gracious father, because that's where the focus is on the kingdom parables, on God. But we have the prodigal son who comes to his dad and takes his inheritance early, which was the equivalent of saying to his dad, I wish you were dead because I want what's mine that I couldn't get otherwise unless you weren't alive. But dad being gracious gives him his inheritance and the young boy is smitten with city life. And he's just done with, with life at home and he's, he's not satisfied with dad and he doesn't like it there and he just thinks, you know, if I had some money and I went to the city, life would be much better. 
And the word prodigal literally means wasted or wasteful life. And that's what he did. He wasted his dad's money and he wasted this season of his life. And, and you know, he was surrounded by the friends that he thought he would get. And he got to party and he got to enjoy the nightlife. And yeah, you can get drunk and have fun and sleep all day and party all night until the consequences caught up with him. Because there's always consequence to sin. What a man soweth, that he will also reapeth, the old King James says. And money ran out. And guess what else, he ha- what, what else he found out when the money ran out? His friends weren't actually friends after all. And there he is alone, wrestling with life. I see him as a young man, you know, that I, I see this young man. We're not given the age, but I see him like, you know, that transition from high school into young adult college years, trying to find out who they are and try a young man wanting to know their identity. Listen, if you're a young man here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and a young woman, your, your relationship with Jesus Christ defines your identity. You're a son of God, a daughter of God. There's no identity out there that will satisfy you. And you will come to the same end as this kid did. You'll lose it all. And then you'll think, should I go home? No, I don't think I can go home. And not only did he lose all his money, but there was a a famine in the land. We don't know much about famine in our society, but consider this. There was a food shortage, which had great economic impact on everyone. It wasn't just not having food, but if they didn't have food, that means the farmers weren't producing. And the farmers weren't producing, that means money wasn't flowing. And if money wasn't flowing, then there was a lot of people hurting. And, And this wasn't just a lack of food where he was hungry, although he was. It was an economic downturn for the entire society. God allowed that in the midst of his prodigal living. So he doesn't decide to go home. He decides to get a job. And he finds a job that would be the equivalent today of under minimum wage. He got, he got a job that was less than minimum wage. Not only that, but it was against his convictions, his religious convictions. Many, much like people I see today, young people today, it's, it's a very sad thing, but I have to tell you that some of the empty chairs in the sanctuary today represent people that have gone back into the world. They're no longer worshiping. It's not that they're in another church, and it's not that they moved to another part of the country. It's they're still in our city, but they're living a prodigal life. They're living for themselves and not for the things of God. And they have this semblance of satisfaction, but the consequences are catching up, and they're catching up. And here's this kid. Consequences are catching up, and he lands this job that are against his religious convictions. Why? Because when you take one step of compromise, it makes every other step of compromise much easier. So what was his job? feeding the pigs. No righteous Jewish boy or girl would ever get near swine. It was unclean. And yet God allowed it as he was there feeding the pigs and he was assessing his life and wondering what happened. This isn't what I thought was going to happen. This is not where I thought I'd end up. That the Bible says that he was so hungry that he was willing to eat that which he was feeding the pigs. And you know what they feed pigs, right? Nasty. Worse than Brussels sprouts. They call it slop. And it's all the leftovers of everything mixed up together. And just to be hungry for that, you've got to be far from your father. But it was in that hunger pain, one of his last hunger pains, that he says, you know, I think I'll go home. 
this isn't for me. I'm going home. But I don't know if I can go home because I left my dad and I hurt him so bad. You know, I'll go home as a hired hand. They got it better than I do. I'll just go serve my dad. I'll just serve him. I don't want to be his son anymore. I don't deserve to be his son anymore. I'll just be one of his servants. And he goes home. And those of you that are familiar, you know. This is a long paraphrase, by the way, of this parable. But you know that as soon as dad saw him afar, he dropped everything and ran to his boy. And of all the lessons that we learn of this beautiful parable, this one is of most significance. The son left home, did his own thing, in great rebellion and difficulty, but one thing the son never stopped being He never stopped being a son. So too for the true person, the person that is truly born again. The person that's truly born again doesn't lose their sonship or their daughtership or their relationship because of bad decisions. And I would just say, if you're a prodigal, it's time to come home. The father is ready for you. He's ready to run to you, embrace you, He's ready to receive you back and help heal up the wounds that you have placed upon yourself. If you're saved, you're secure. You're secure by the power of God. The seed, according to Peter, is imperishable. Eternal life is just that, eternal life. But what about, Pastor Ed, come back in John 17 now, what about that son of perdition? What about him? Well, He's shared to us in contrast to the true believer. He's used in this time of prayer with the Father in contrast to the true believer. If we're born again, we are secure in Christ. We have an imperishable new life. It's wonderful. We need to know that even when we're going through trials and difficulties and stumbling and falling, that Jesus reminds us that we're kept by his power. But what about Judas? Well, Judas is a great example of a make-believer. Judas is a great example of a make-believer. There are true believers and there are make-believers. The deceived. How do I know Judas was not a believer? Because the devil entered him. The devil entered him. His own works and fruit demonstrate that he left to never return. And that's what's scary about prodigal living. You think you're a believer. You think you're in. You hear a study like this, it might even embolden you. Well, you know, if God's going to keep me, then I'll just go take my chances. No, you misunderstand. That's not the heart of God at all. Grace, and Peter would say in another place, is not a cloak for sin. No, we don't avoid it as possible. But here's the thing. You may go into prodigal living and never come back. Why? Because that's where you'll find out you're not a true believer. And you say, Ed, is that even possible? Listen, jot it down. I'll read it to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they have, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. Judas did not lose his salvation because he didn't lose something that he didn't have to begin with. He is a man that serves as an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have a relationship with Jesus Christ but finally was exposed as a fake and a fraud. 
Jesus is praying that way for us. And I personally rest upon the keeping power of God in my life. I personally rest on the power of God that's beyond my ability. I can't keep myself, and neither can you. Jesus is proclaimed to be the author and the finisher of our faith. He's proclaimed to be the alpha and the omega. Some of you have always wondered, what does that mean, Ed? Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. It would be the equivalent of us saying that Jesus is the A to the Z in our lives. Salvation starts with him. Salvation is only from him. Salvation is kept by him. And it's reserved in heaven for us in the presence of Jesus Christ. And I have the privilege of joining together with our church family week after week, reminding us of the great love of God. How he loves you and me so much that he, as a father, will run to welcome you back. He'll passionately pursue you through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And if, if it is that need for you to be welcomed back, please come. Please respond. Don't, don't be fooled into thinking that you're saved when you're really not. If you really have that true question, then, then ask so we can walk you through some of the places in the Bible that will reveal to you what true salvation looks like. What a real believer that perseveres with the saints looks like. But the joy of praying and the joy of hearing and the joy of being prayed for is something that I'm grateful. And you're here today and I'm here today. Why and how? Because we're kept by the power of God through his love for us. Count out, run it, can't run away from it. Jesus is with us in the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And amen. We rejoice. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And Father, we are so grateful for these reminders in our lives. And we certainly, I have no desire to presume upon you, God, to take my chances in the world or to think that somehow I'm keeping myself or it's my power or my strength. I know and you know it's not me that keeps me. It's your strength that's made perfect in my weakness. It's your faithfulness that's made known when I'm unfaithful. It's your joy when I'm joyless. It's your peace when I'm in turmoil. It's your peace that passes understanding when I'm anxious. And what's true for me is true for us as we follow you, God. Jesus, thank you for praying out loud for us. Thank you for praying in the earshot of John that he would write it down for us so that we might learn and and just be in awe of what's on your heart right before the cross. What you're really thinking about, what you're really going through. That, Lord, you would have your way with us. That we would not only talk to you about men, but we would talk to men about you. And we would just be faithful to the calling you've given us. Be faithful in the realm that we're living. Be the salt and the light of the earth. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the world today, but it gives us hope. It gives us hope of your soon return. It gives us hope of your love for a lost and dying world. It gives us hope as we remember somebody was praying for us. So we commit this time to you, God. We pray that you use it in our lives and make us stronger, more vibrant believers living for you in these last days. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.